The Skinless Face by Donald Tyson 1. The side window of the UAZ-452 was so coated with dust, Howard Amundsen could barely distinguish the brick-colored desert from the cloudless blue sky above its flat horizon. Not that there was much of interest to look at from the jolting, grinding minibus, he admitted to himself. Over the past ten hours, the scenery had transitioned from the grassy plain that lay just outside of Mandelgovai to red dirt with only the occasional trace of green to show that anything was alive in the desolation. There was no question in Amundsen's mind that the Gobi Desert was the most desolate place he had ever seen. The sheer bleakness of it held its own strange grandeur. It was nothing like the deserts in Hollywood movies with their rolling sand dunes. The Gobi was carpeted with rocks. They lay scattered everywhere, ranging in size from pebbles to Volkswagens. For the most part, the empty landscape was flat, but here and there a low ridge broke the monotony. A jolt beneath his seat clicked his teeth together on the corner of his tongue. He tasted blood and cursed. The ruts in the track the driver followed were so deep they bottomed out even the Russian UAZ in spite of its spectacular ground clearance. The Mongolian in the front passenger seat turned and grinned, then spoke a few words to the driver who glanced back at Amundsen and laughed. Neither of them understood English, so there was no point in talking to them. They had been hired to transport him to Keltapu, and obviously were not concerned about what condition he might be in when he arrived. He wrinkled his nose. The inside of the minibus smelled like a mixture of oil, sweat, and camel piss. God alone knows what it had transported before baby Huey. Amundsen twisted in his seat to study the straps that held the canary yellow case of the multispectrum electromagnetic imager on its pallet. The machine was the only reason he was in this desert. When Alan Hendricks, acting dean of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, had offered him the chance to give it a field test, he had jumped at the opportunity. A successful trial would clinch the grant of tenure he had been lobbying for over the past two years. Only later had he paused to consider what would be involved in moving baby Huey halfway around the world to the backside of nowhere. The machine was as small and as light as modern electronics could make it, but even so, it took a lot of energy output to make electromagnetic waves penetrate solid rock, and Huey tipped the scale at more than a quarter of a ton. Beside it sat the generator he had demanded from the Mongolian authorities. He had made it clear to them that there was no way he would take Huey into the desert without its own power supply. The government had agreed to his demand. The Mongolians wanted the test to be a success almost as much as Amundsen. I should be back at MIT going over term papers, he thought, scowling through the dirty window. If this thing runs into some glitch and fails, I'm going to look like a fool and there won't be anyone else to blame. I'm naked out here. No assistant, no colleagues, no one to cover my ass. It was not a comforting thought. He had been quick to claim credit for the basic design work on Huey, even though the initial concept had come from one of his graduate students, a bright Chinese named Yun. The grad student had kept his mouth shut. He wanted his doctorate and knew better than to try to upset the natural order of things at the university, but that only meant that if Huey failed, Amundsen would have to shoulder all of the blame. The UAZ-452 lurched and shuddered to a stop as the driver killed the engine. Amundsen pushed himself halfway out of his seat and saw through the windows on the opposite side of the minibus that they were not far from a cluster of khaki field tents, besides which were parked several trucks. "'Are we there yet?' he demanded of the driver. The Mongolian grinned and jabbered in his own language. He threw open the side door and gestured for the lanky engineer to get out. Hot desert air rolled into the air-conditioned interior. Amundsen unfolded himself with difficulty. After sitting for so long on the uncomfortable seat, stiffness had found its way into his very bones.
From the open door of the largest tent, a group of Westerners and a single Mongolian emerged. The leader, a white-haired man with a pot-belly and bearded face, extended his hand. He was a head shorter than Amundsen and had to look up to meet the engineer's gray eyes. "'You must be Amundsen from MIT,' he said in a resonant voice. "'I'm Joseph Lasky, and I rule in hell.' He let out a booming laugh at his own joke. Amundsen accepted the calloused hand and shook it, surprised by its strength. There was soil under the fingernails. "'This is my wife Anna, my assistant James Sykes, Professor Sakia Ganzorig from the National Museum of Mongolia at Ulaanbaatar, and the head of the American student team, Luther White.' From Pittsburgh, the athletic young black man said with a grin. You'll meet the rest of the students at dinner. Supper, Anna Lasky corrected with a slight smile. We dine late. No point in wasting the light, her husband explained. Pleased to meet you, Sykes said. I can hardly wait to get a look at that machine of yours. He was a small man with narrow shoulders and a bald patch at the crown of his head. You're English, Amundsen said with surprise. Caught me by birth, but I've been with the Smithsonian for near on twenty years. The Smithsonian had put up the bulk of the money to finance the Keltapu dig, which was named after a local geological feature. Satellite photographs had revealed the faint outline of buried ruins on the track of an ancient silk road. They were invisible from the ground, but had looked promising enough for the Smithsonian to gather a team of archaeologists. The students were all unpaid volunteers, of course. They always were. They worked for the experience of being part of an important expedition and for the improvement of their resumes. From what Amundsen had read about the find at Keltapu, they had all hit the jackpot. A loud bang from the open rear of the minibus drew his attention. He made an apologetic face to Lasky and stalked around the vehicle. Be careful with that, he said in irritation. The two Mongolians were hunched over the imager, using a kind of wrench to release the buckles on the tight straps that held it to its pallet. Another strap let go and hit the side of the minibus. Ganzorig came around the edge of the door and spoke to his countrymen in a quiet voice. The grins fell from their faces, and they nodded seriously. "'I'm sure they'll be careful,' he told Amundsen. "'I have explained how valuable this equipment is to the expedition.' "'Thank you,' the engineer said. "'If it gets knocked out of calibration, it will take me a week to put it right again.' Lasky approached. The others had gone back into the tent. "'Let me show you around the site,' he said, putting his hand on Amundsen's shoulder. He allowed the archaeologist to lead him behind the tents, where, some distance away from the camp, the ground had been excavated in a series of trenches and holes.' From a distance, it resembled a gopher village. "'You never know this is a river valley, would you?' Lasky said companionably. "'It looks flat. Even so, satellite photographs and topographic measurements show that an ancient river once ran through here, very close to where we are digging. It dried up fifty or sixty thousand years ago.' They stopped in front of a wall of canvas erected in a rectangle some ten yards wide and forty yards long. "'We keep our prize behind this barrier to exclude wind-blown dust and desert animals.' You'd be surprised how many creatures live in the desert. Some say there are even wolves. Drawing aside a flap in the wall at the near end of the enclosure, he gestured for Amundsen to enter and followed close behind. The engineer stopped and stared in amazement. It's quite a sight, isn't it? Lasky said with a dry chuckle. I always like to watch the reaction the first time someone sees it. The ground had been excavated just inside the barrier on all sides so that only a perimeter strip a few feet wide remained of the original desert surface. The rest of the enclosure was an elongated hole, but it was not empty. Within it lay a black stone statue. It reminded Amundsen of the statues of Easter Island, but was not quite like anything he had ever seen. The lines of its primitive form exhaled brute strength. It was humanoid, but not quite human in its proportions. The massive erect phallus that lay flat along its lower belly was certainly not human. 
It seemed vaguely aquatic in some indefinable way. Perhaps it was the thickness of the neck or the webbing between the impossibly long fingers. The covering of soil had preserved the sharp edges of the stone carving with a single exception. The face of the statue was no more than a featureless mask. No trace of a nose, lips, or eye sockets remained, if indeed they had ever existed. "'Have you identified the stone?' the engineer asked. "'Some kind of basalt,' Lasky told him. "'We're not yet sure exactly what it is, to be honest. It has resisted identification.' "'You mean it's not local?' Amundsen said, as he began to slowly walk around the hole. "'Not local, no.' "'So the statue wasn't carved in situ?' "'Good heavens, no. The stone of the desert is too fractured to carve out a figure of this size. You're thinking it's like the recumbent statues on Easter Island.' "'Thought had crossed my mind,' Amundsen murmured. He bent over to study the surface of the head. "'No, impossible. This statue was transported here from far away. How far, we can't even guess, but... There is no stone like this for hundreds of miles, and it was upright. We found its pedestal buried at its base. At some point it was toppled off its support into a hole and covered with dirt. The burial of ancient stone carvings in ancient religious sites was not unknown. Amundsen remembered reading about such a site. You mean like Gobekli Tepe? Gobekli Tepe was a 12,000-year-old archaeological site in Turkey, consisting of carven stone monoliths and other structures that at some point in its long history had been completely buried, but was in every other way intact. Yes, Lasky said, pleased at the reference. Something like that. The engineer crouched and leaned over the edge of the hole as far as he could reach. He was just able to touch the edge of the smooth face of the giant. You're certain it wasn't buried face down? Quite certain, Lasky said firmly. The position of the arms and hands, to say nothing of the phallus, clearly shows that it is lying on its back facing the heavens. Even so, we excavated beneath the head. There is no face on the other side. I think I see the chisel marks, Amundsen murmured, stroking the black stone lightly with his fingertips. You can see them better in early morning. The low angle of the sun accentuates them. The archaeologist waited in silence while Amundsen studied the enigmatic featureless mask. The engineer straightened his knees and turned. Lights of excitement danced in his pale gray eyes. It will work, I'm sure of it. Lasky clapped him on the shoulder. Excellent! We'll get started tomorrow. 2. Dinner, no, supper, he corrected himself, was better than he expected. Sykes did the cooking chores, and he did them purely by choice, Anna Lasky explained to Amundsen. The little cockney had an innate talent for cooking. It was usual on an archaeological dig to eat the local cuisine, but at Kel Tapu, it was the local diggers who sampled what was to them exotic dining. Roast beef, pudding... Dumplings, fish and chips, meat pies, stews, bangers and mash. The first night of the dig, the local man assigned by Ghani to do the cooking made korkhog and kushur, goat meat and deep-fried dumplings, Anna told him. I didn't think it tasted that bad, really, but Sykes was beside himself. He practically begged Joe to make him camp cook. The conversation around the long dining table in the main tent was lively and free of the tensions that so often plagued academic gatherings. In part, this was due to Professor Lasky's dominating personality. His enthusiasm and good spirits were infectious. In part, it was also due to his gracious wife, who acted as hostess at the table. But mainly, it was the general atmosphere of success that pervaded the entire team. Those participating in the dig knew they were making history, and at the same time ensuring the future prosperity of their academic careers. This left them with little to complain about. Two conversations were taking place at the same time across the table, 
one in English among the Americans and the other in Mongolian among the local diggers. Ghani, as Anna Lasky called Sakia Ganzerig, acted as translator at those infrequent intervals when a member of one group had something to say to a member of the other. Amundsen noticed several of the Mongolians toying with small carved stone discs about the size of a silver dollar. When the opportunity arose, he turned to the young woman seated on his right, a blonde graduate student from the University of Southern California named Lucy Henders. "'Could you tell me, what are those objects?' he murmured. She followed his eyes, fork poised before her lips, and smiled. "'You mean our good luck charms. That's what Professor Lasky calls them. We've been finding them all over the place, inside the graves.' "'Graves?' Lucy chewed and nodded at the same time. "'This whole site is really one huge graveyard. There are graves all around the Colossus. That's what we call the statue. Hundreds, maybe thousands of them. The bones are gone, but when we dig, we find stone ossuaries that must have held them with those carved discs inside.' "'What happened to the bones?' Time happened. Thousands of years ago, this was a wet river valley. Bones don't last under those conditions unless they putrefy. Is the stone of the tokens the same as the stone of the Colossus? We're pretty sure it is, she answered. It's not local stone. I wonder if I might have one, Amundsen said apologetically. I can use it to adjust my projector before I set it into place. I don't see why not. We've got dozens. Everyone's got one. Give me a minute. She stood and left the tent. Amundsen continued his meal. In a few minutes, she resumed her seat and with a smile pressed something cold and hard into his hand. He studied it. The black stone was surprisingly heavy and not quite circular, he noticed, but ovoid, some two inches across on its longest diameter and half an inch thick. Its edges were rounded like those of a beach stone. Into one face, a simple geometric figure had been deeply carved. It was a kind of spiral with four arms. Amundsen realized that it was a primitive form of sunwheel or swastika. Thank you, he told Lucy Henders. This will be very useful. One of the grads, a red-haired Irishman from Boston College named Jimmy Dolan, noticed the black stone and pointed at it across the table with his fork. I see you've joined the Colta Okoboko, he said. Several other students laughed, including Lucy. When we first started finding these stones, we noticed that they were going missing, she explained to the engineer. Professor Lasky was upset because he thought we had a thief in the camp. He and Ghani started to question everybody, and it turned out that the Mongolian diggers were taking them for good luck charms. This valley is supposed to be real bad luck or something, according to local superstition, and the Mongolians believe that the stones would protect them from the evil whatever it is. They got upset when the professor tried to take the stones back, so he realized he'd better let them keep them or he'd have a mutiny on his hands and we would never get any work done. Anyway, Ghani made all the local diggers promise to give the stones back when the dig is finished. You'll have to give yours back, too. Amundsen dropped the black stone into the vest pocket of his shirt and laid his hand across it. "'I do solemnly swear to return it,' he said. Lucy laughed, her blue eyes sparkling with something a little brighter than the table wine. "'Things are looking up,' Amundsen thought to himself. "'Things are definitely looking up.'" 3. The engineering problem was simple. The imager had to be positioned directly above the face of the Colossus and no more than three feet away, since the statue could not be moved, it was necessary to build a superstructure above it to support the machine. When Amundsen mentioned the problem to Sykes, the little Englishman said he had just what was needed and came back with two aluminum ladders. The ladders easily spanned the sides of the trench in which the Colossus lay. It was necessary to support them from below with diagonal bracing so that they would bear the weight of baby Huey without buckling, but this was not difficult. Within an hour, the framework was ready and the squat yellow machine in position beside the hole. 
Amundsen had already spent the previous evening setting its censers for the density of the black stone, which appeared identical in every respect to the stone of the statue. It was surprisingly easy to skid the imager along the ladders, and only a bit more taxing to get it positioned precisely above the face using the built-in camera as a guide. Lasky had been right, Amundsen thought, as he looked at the camera image of the blank face on his monitor. The statue was oriented with its head in the west, and the beams of the morning sun slanting along its body highlighted the marks of the chisel that had been used to cut away its features. He wondered idly what strange compulsion had caused a primitive people to cast down the statue and mutilate it. Perhaps they were some warring tribe and thought they were defeating the god of their enemies. He shrugged. He was an engineer, not an archaeologist. There was no need to bother his mind with such questions, which were probably unanswerable. Amundsen found himself less nervous than he expected, considering that his future career at MIT was riding on the performance of the imager. He smiled to himself. Not all of last night had been spent on work. The latter part of the evening he had devoted to the relaxing task of exploring Lucy Henders. She was interested in him only because he was the first unfamiliar male to walk into the camp in months, that much was obvious, but it had not diminished his pleasure. Why make life complicated when it could be simple? That was his personal motto. It had served him well enough through the first half of his life, and he saw no reason why it should not serve equally well through the second half. This morning, Lucy was away from the camp with Lasky and his wife, Ghani, and most of the others, excavating an artificial passage that had been found amid the graves. The discovery had been made by chance while digging exploratory holes. When first found, the passage had been completely choked with rubble and its entrance covered with dirt. Lasky was removing the rubble slowly so as not to miss any objects that might lie hidden in it. He had the students screening the dirt and gravel as it was taken out of the passage by the diggers. Amundsen noticed Luther White across the trench. When he looked at the black grad student, White turned his head away. He had worn the same sullen expression all morning and had failed to respond when Amundsen greeted him at breakfast. Apparently, it was impossible to keep anything secret in so small a camp. He wondered if Lucy had even tried to conceal her late-night visit to his tent, or had she taken some perverse pleasure in relating the details to Luther. After a few minutes dithering around, White found his way around the hole and approached Amundsen. All the cheerfulness of the previous day had vanished. "'Stay away from Lucy,' he said in a low voice. "'What?' the engineer smiled disarmingly. "'What, what did you say?' "'You heard me,' White snarled. "'I'm not going to tell you again. Lucy is mine, not yours.' He backed away before Amundsen could think of a response. Sykes, working nearby on the wires that connected the imager to the data processing unit, gave no sign that he had heard the exchange, although he must have heard every word. "'I'm ready to switch on,' Amundsen told the Englishman in a neutral tone. Sykes nodded. He started the generator with its pull cord. It fired on the second pull and ran smoothly. With his laptop computer across his knees, Amundsen put baby Huey through its paces. The scanner hummed and stopped at the end of each pass, moving slowly back and forth like a farmer plowing a field. Its beam was invisible, but a red laser cast a spot on the stone below it to act as a guide. Sykes approached behind him and peered over his shoulder. "'You won't tell me how this works?' he asked. Amundsen didn't mind. He had the time. The scan of the machine was largely automatic, once its parameters were programmed in. "'You know how it's possible to recover a serial number on a gun when the number has been completely filed off?' Sykes nodded. I use acid. Metal is auto under the place where the numbers are stamped in, so the acid eats the surrounding metal quicker, and the outer numbers show up in what they call ball relief. Amundsen nodded. It's the same with stone. When stone is carved using a chisel, the repeated impact of the blade aligns the molecules in the stone. 
The harder the impact, the greater the alignment, or the more frequent the impact, the greater the alignment. Same thing, it's the total impact on the stone that determines the degree of stress. You mean a few odd hits is the same as a lot of little ones, Sykes said. You got it. What this machine does is project energy down into the stone and then read the resonance that energy produces in the aligned molecules. The greater the alignment, the stronger the resonance. A computer assembles the data into an image. Oh, it's sort of like ground-penetrating radar, Sykes said. It uses a completely different band of projected energy, but the overall idea is similar. So you can use this here machine to recover any image that was ever impressed on any stone surface, even after it gets worn away by erosion. In theory, Amundsen said, in practice it's not so simple. Some images are carved using regular pressure instead of struck using hammers. Some types of stone work better than others. Usually the denser stone yields a better result. Why won't the impact of the chisel when the face was cut away spoil the image? Amundsen raised his eyebrows and glanced over his shoulder at Sykes. The little man was no fool. Because they were all uniform, more or less. They will be picked up by the scanner, but they will be like a curtain of background noise. The computer will be able, should be able, to strip away that curtain and reveal what lies beneath it. Won't that be a sight, Sykes said, staring at the little red dot of the laser as it scanned back and forth across the face. We'll be the first people for thousands of years to see what it looked like. Amundsen shrugged. The excitement for him was in the technical challenge of recovering a clear image. A face was a face. Undoubtedly, the image on the Colossus would be strange and uncouth, like most primitive art, but what would it signify in the scheme of things? The world was littered with old statues, each bearing unique features. What was one more such image, more or less? He only hoped it would be grotesque enough to catch the eye when printed in the newspapers. How long is it going to take? Sykes asked. About two hours to scan. Then the computer will need another four hours or so to process the data into a coherent image. It should be ready by late afternoon. I can hardly wait, Sykes said with sincerity. You and me both, Amundsen thought. Everything in his life was riding on the outcome of this test. If it failed, he could always run it a few more times, but he knew that the imager would either yield a result on the first scan, or it would never yield a good result. Conditions were perfect. 4. We'll know in a second, Amundsen said. He had moved his processing computer into the main tent and set it up on the cleared dining table. Almost everyone in the camp was waiting to see the image when it finally formed on the monitor screen. Lasky stood behind him with his wife and Ghani close on either side. The grads milled behind him and the Mongolians clustered on the other side of the long table, their faces curiously apprehensive. Many of them fingered the small stone discs as though they really were protective talismans. Amundsen got the impression that, were it up to the superstitious diggers, he would never be permitted to display the image of the face. It will be in black and white, he said to those behind his chair. A buzzer sounded in the bowels of the computer. Here it comes, he said, unable to prevent his voice from rising in pitch. The image began to appear on the monitor in horizontal strips, painting itself across the screen from top to bottom. When it was about a fifth of the way down, Amundsen released the breath he had been holding unconsciously and relaxed the knotted muscles in his abdomen. It was going to be all right. He couldn't see what the image was yet, but he could see that it was a clear, coherent image, and for him, that was all that mattered. The test was a success. It was not quite as sharp as a photograph, but he had never expected that degree of clarity. They waited in silence as the gray bands continued to paint themselves onto the screen. It's human, Ghani said. So it is, Lasky said with excitement. I was expecting something monstrous, but it's human. It looks female, Anna Lasky murmured. 
Nah, it's male, Sykes said. It looks female to me, Lucy told him. Amundsen wondered what she was seeing. The face, which by now was more than half visible on the screen, was clearly the face of a man. It was startling in its sheer ordinariness. It might as well have been a contemporary snapshot of anyone in the tent. Indeed, the more he looked at it, the more it seemed familiar to him. He wondered where he had seen the face before. Lucy laughed nervously. This is a joke, she said. Amundsen turned in his chair to look at her. What do you mean? Lasky asked. Well, look at it. It's a joke, that's all. <laughs> you got me, Professor Amundsen. You got me good, guys. You really had me going. I thought this was a real test. What are you talking about? Amundsen demanded. She stared at him with wide blue eyes, the half-smirk frozen in place on her lips. She looked at the others. Come on, guys. Funny is fun, but this is enough. They all stared at her. She pointed at the screen. You used a picture of my face. Good one. You got me. Now turn it off. Lasky glanced at the computer screen, then back at the blonde grad student. Are you feeling quite well, Lucy? Perhaps you had better go to your tent to lie down. It's my face, she said loudly. Do you think I don't recognize my own face? My God, Anna Lasky said. Her fingers rose to her lips. My God. Amundsen looked back at the screen. The face had almost completely formed itself in grayscale. It was a lifelike representation of a middle-aged man with short hair. My God, Anna Lasky said more loudly, backing away from the screen. Jesus, I'll see it now, Sykes said. See what? Lasky demanded. He turned to his wife. Anna, what do you see? It's my face, she said. I didn't recognize it at first, but it's my face. Her husband looked at the image. It's a man's face, my dear. If nothing else, the beard should tell you that. Look again, Sykes told him in a faint voice. Look, Otta. Amundsen wondered if they had all suddenly gone mad. There was no question about the gender of the face. It was definitely male, but clean-shaven. There was something maddeningly familiar about it. You saw you see a beard, Professor, Sykes asked him. Yes, a short beard, much like my own. I'll see no beard, Sykes said. That's absurd, Lasky said. It's right there. You see it, don't you, Ghani? The Mongolian shook his head. He was strangely silent, but there was fear in his eyes. The same fear was mirrored in the faces of his countrymen on the other side of the table. The tent had fallen still. It's my face, Joseph Lasky said in a leaden voice. It is all our faces, Ghani said. Amundsen stared at the screen. Recognition leapt out at him. How could he have missed it? The image on the screen was his own face, its eyes staring impassively back into his. It was like looking into a mirror, or better to say, like looking at a black and white photograph of himself. A mirror reversed his face from left to right, and he had become accustomed to seeing it that way. That was why he had failed to recognize himself instantly. It can't be all our faces, he said, his voice lifeless in his own ears. I never scanned any of our faces. In any case, it's only one image. It can't be all our faces at the same time. But it is, Sykes said. One of the Mongolian diggers began to jabber in his own language at Ghani, who responded in a soothing tone, but the man was in no mood to be placated. Gathering his courage, he walked quickly around the table and stared at the image on the monitor. For a few seconds, he did not react. Then he screamed and began to babble at the other diggers. Ghani put a hand on his shoulders and the man flinched as though burned with hot iron. He backed away from the monitor, unable to take his eyes from it, until his back pressed against the side of the tent. The touch of canvas on his shoulders galvanized him. 
With a cry, he ran from the tent. The other Mongolian diggers quickly followed, leaving only the archaeologist beside the table. There has to be a scientific explanation, Amundsen said, his eyes captivated by the image on the monitor. Mass hallucination, Lucy said. I've been on LSD. I know what it feels like, Dolan said with a shake of his red head. This is no hallucination. But how is the image being formed? Amundsen asked. How can it be different for each of us? Maybe it isn't an image at all, Sykes suggested. Maybe it's something that makes an image in our minds when we look at it. Amundsen bent over one of the machines on the table. What are you doing? Sykes asked. I'm printing out a hard copy, the engineer murmured. I want to see if it has the same effect as the image on the monitor. The printer generated the black and white copy in a matter of seconds. Amundsen took it from the rack and held it up for the others to view. They unconsciously backed away a step when he extended it toward them. It's the same. Still my face, Lucy said. And mine, Anna agreed. Want to, Sykes said. Amundsen stared at them, barely able to contain his excitement. Do you know what this means? he demanded. They gave him blank stares. It means we're all going to be famous. All right, well, that was The Skinless Face, part one by Donald Tyson. Uh, I certainly hope you enjoyed it. Part two is coming up next, and things get a little weird. So, uh, thank you for listening. I'm really glad you, en- uh, I'm, I'm really glad you enjoyed it. Uh, thank you all so much for all of the, uh, support and all of the, um, just all the, I, all of the support that you've given. Uh, here I am. I'm flustered. <sighs> um, Australia is still burning. It's still on fire. It's still going crazy out there. So if you have, uh, the time and the, and the, and the money to donate, you don't even really need a lot of money, just a few bucks here and there. Anything that you can give will help. There are a couple places you can donate. You can donate to giveit.org, G-I-V-I-T.org.au, uh, giveit.org.au. You can you can uh, donate to cfsfoundation.org.au/donate, or you can check out cfa.vic.gov.au/about/supporting-cfa. Um, if you can just give a little bit of a little bit of money whatever you can give you don't have to give much but whatever you can give i'm sure it would be very much appreciated um thank you uh thank you for listening thank you for all of the support i i really appreciate it and uh yeah i guess that's it so i will see you next week with the conclusion of the skinless face february's coming up we're going to be doing fourth wall february again because i've got a bunch of stories that i can use for that and uh other than that uh, I'm done with the outro, so da-da-da-da-da-da, here's the bloops! When Alan Hendricks, acting dean of the Massachusetts... Massachusetts? No. When Alan Hendricks, acting dean of the Massachusetts... Inti- Massachusetts Institute of Technology. When Alan Hendricks, acting dean of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, had offered him the chance to give it a field test... You'd be surprised how many creatures live in the desert. You'd be surprised how many creatures live in the desert. That little hitch in the sentence came because I got a notification on my iPod as I was reading that the Flophouse just did their episode on cats. So, I'm going to be listening to that in a few minutes here. Some say there are even wolves. And that was my pop blocker banging against the microphone.
The massive erect phallus that lay flat along its lower belly was certainly not human. It seemed vaguely aquatic in some indefinable way. Perhaps it was the... See, I read that like it was describing the phallus, and it's not. It's describing just the entire statue. So I'm going to go back and do that all over again. Gani, as Anna Lashki called... Lasky. Gani, as Aunt... Gani, as Anna Lasky called Sakia Gonzarig. Gani, as Anna Lasky called Sakia Gonzarig. God! Sakia Gonzarig. Gani, as Anna Lasky called... Anna Lasky. Gani, as Anna... I keep wanting to say Anna. It's not Anna, it's Anna. <sighs> this is going to be a long night. I'm recording this at midnight. Because tomorrow is upload day, and also tomorrow I'm going to be spending the entire day at my in-law's house. So I'm not going to have time to record, so I need to get this all done tonight. Gani, as Anna Lasky called Sakia Gonzarig. This morning, Lucy was away from the camp with Lasky and his wife, Gani. Nope. That's, Gani's not his wife. That's not his wife. All right. Well, that was The Skinless Face, part one by, <laughs> I don't have a clue who it's by. Uh, Hold on a second. I will find out.